We were talking before the break um, about ambiguity some of the time. And um, here's a uh, mosaic picture. As you can see in this picture, uh, Jesus is going around blinding people by poking them in the eye. <laughs> is that what, what's going on in this picture? I think probably not. I think actually this is a picture of Jesus healing a blind person of his blindness. That's a much better way to interpret that picture. But a lot of atheists these days have got the idea that at an intellectual level, uh, Jesus encourages a rational blindness. Um, That religion of all kinds is about having blind faith in something. And particularly for the so-called new atheist movement, this is something that they're very worried about, faith. They think, okay, some religious people are very radicalised and will go and blow people up in the name of their faith. But yes, there are, you know, nice religious people. But even the nice religious people, by being religious, are endorsing the idea that it's okay to believe in things just on blind faith. And that that opens up people to being deceived and manipulated in all kinds of ways, which can lead to radicalism. So even the most mild-mannered, tea-drinking English vicar at the Garden Fate, uh, who wouldn't hurt a fly, because he endorses religion, therefore he endorses blind faith, and that is bad Uh, for people, bad for society and so we need to argue against uh, religion and Christianity in society now if the new atheist interpretation of what is demanded of our rationality by religious faith, faith in Christ in particular if that were the correct interpretation, if Jesus really is going around poking people in the the metaphorical rational eye and blinding us then I think we should agree with them that that is a problem that that this is a difficulty uh, that needs to be met and we can sympathise with why they are against religion whilst I think we need to argue very strongly that they have misinterpreted what Jesus is doing just as you can misinterpret this picture as Jesus blinding rather than healing uh, Jesus is actually interested in encouraging rationality and critical thinking and he does not encourage blind faith in the Christian tradition as a whole although it has had some elements within it that have been uh, that have embraced blind faith then you may find individual Christians who have an unthought through irrational faith Jesus himself, the Bible, Christian tradition, are very strong on on actually encouraging rational uh, faith. So, I think A.C. Grayling, who's a British uh, philosopher, new atheist writer, he is right when he notes that it is quite hard for us to hear things sometimes. We can actually make ourselves deaf and blind by means of our unrecognised prejudices. If you were already prejudiced against Jesus and you saw that picture of him, that, might, that prejudice might lead you to interpret it as, there you go, there's Jesus doing another bad thing. And you don't take the time to look at the context of the picture, to notice that the man he's poking in the eye has a stick. Why does he have a stick? Oh, it's because it's his cane, because he's blind. What is going on in that picture and to to actually interpret it more carefully Um, but they don't bother going into that careful interpretation because of their prejudice and as we'll see several new atheists uh, interpret various scriptural passages about faith um, in a very prejudiced and biased way that's not good careful interpretation and they use those biased interpretations to, to reinforce their prejudice that faith is blind but only by actually reading against the grain of scripture rather than reading with it. 
Mark Twain, uh, the American writer, famously said, Faith is believing what you know ain't so. You have to imagine him doing it in an American drawl. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. Um, And that kind of cultural idea still hangs around today. And we need to be clear uh, that that does not apply to Christian faith. Uh, I was mentioning last night passages like 1 Peter 3.15. Why would a verse like 1 Peter 3.15 be in the Bible um, if Christianity was all about having blind faith? It, It would hardly be the kind of religion that would encourage its adherents to be ready with reasons for the faith that they have in Jesus. That just doesn't hold together. Or St. Augustine, to quote a famous church theologian, said, but they are much deceived who think that we believe in Christ without any proofs. John Lennox, who I've probably mentioned uh, before as well, he says that the new atheists are classic examples of the very thing that they despise. This is quite ironic. He says the new atheists are characterised by the blind faith that all faith is blind. Uh, The new atheist concept of faith is a delusion in the sense that they, they themselves define the term. It's a persistent false belief held in the face of strong contradictory evidence. Against all the evidence, don't they even bother consulting dictionaries, he asks. They irrationally reduce all faith to blind faith and then subject it to ridicule. So, talking about dictionaries, here's the entry from uh, Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary on the meaning of the term faith. And you see it has a range of meanings. um, Allegiance or duty to a person, it means loyalty. Um, Fidelity to your promises. I, I, I keep faith with you when I keep my promises. It can mean belief and trust in and loyalty to God or to the doctrines of a religion. Firm belief in something for which there's no proof is one of the meanings that faith can have. But even that is not necessarily saying belief without reason or evidence. You could take proof as meaning very strong, you know, proof. And there are lots of things that we believe in life without proof in the kind of mathematical or logical sense but nonetheless we believe because we think we've got good enough reason so even that is a little ambiguous there it can mean complete trust just means something that's believed strongly so it has a range of meanings and yes you could interpret one of those meanings as being about blind faith but the new atheists just tell people time and time again they just say here's what faith means it means blind faith Um, so Christopher Hitchens fantastic photo of him here I'm a journalist you know in his gabardine mac Um, he says religion is a surrender of reason in favour of faith you either have reason or you have faith as if faith automatically means blind faith. Or Richard Dawkins, uh, he criticises faith for requiring blind trust in the absence of evidence or even in the teeth of evidence. Back to Grayling again. says, faith is non-rational at best and probably irrational given that it involves deliberately ignoring Evidence to have faith is to deliberately ignore the evidence to the contrary. That's just what it means. Well, here's a respected Christian philosopher, J.P. Morland, talking about what he thinks faith means from a Christian perspective. And the New Atheists would do well to listen. He says that the essence of faith whether you're talking about biblical faith or or other kinds of faith, it is confidence or trust. That's the majority meaning of of the term. And one can have faith in a thing, or you can have faith in a person, 
like a, a parent or in God. And you can have faith in the truth of a, of a proposition. And when trust is directed towards a person or a thing, it's called having faith in. So I have faith in my parents. I have faith in God. When it's directed towards the truth of a proposition, of just a statement, it's called faith that. So I have faith that the premises in an argument are true. And he says it's a great misunderstanding of faith to oppose it to reason or knowledge. Nothing could be further from the truth. In actual fact, faith, confidence, trust is rooted in knowledge. And I think we Christians would be well advised because this idea is so abroad in culture now that when you talk about faith, people hear you as meaning blind, irrational faith. That we'd be better to avoid that kind of word altogether and talk in terms of, I trust Jesus. I rely on God. I think he's trustworthy. I think the information in the Bible is true. Just talk in those kind of terms, rather than saying, I have faith in Jesus. Why don't you consider having faith in God? Because people will hear us as saying, why don't you think about being irrational? (laughs) Dallas Willard defines faith this way. He says, faith is a commitment to action based upon knowledge of God and God's ways. So remember what I was saying yesterday about spirituality, how that connects the beliefs of our mind through our attitudes to lead us to action. There, there. He's saying, when you trust someone, you have faith in them, you're prepared to act on the basis of that trust. It's one thing to say, I believe that the rope bridge across the gorge will probably hold my weight. It's quite another thing to demonstrate my faith in the bridge by walking out onto it and actually trusting myself to it in my actions. So I show by, my, by how I behave what, what I put my trust in. David Marshall and Timothy McGrew, and this is a really good uh, recent book responding to the New Atheist Movement, uh, their book True Reason, uh, edited by Tom Gilson and Carson Whitenauer. And Marshall and McGrew have a chapter in there when they talk about the definition of faith and say, by faith we mean trusting, holding to, and acting on what one has good reason to believe is true in the face of difficulties. Uh, that's an interesting way of defining it. We'll come back to some of the biblical roots of that in a moment. But Sam Harris, American New Atheist writer, he misinterprets a biblical passage to justify his prejudice that faith means blind faith. So he looks at Hebrews 11, verse 1. He says, Hebrews 11, verse 1, defines faith as, quote, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then he says, Read in the right way, and I'll show you in a moment why actually that's read in completely the wrong way. He says, read in the right way, this passage seems to render faith entirely self-justifying, or that is blind. And you can see how just taking that verse out of context in that translation, you know, you could get the idea that faith, biblical faith, is about lacking reasons for believing things. But, first of all, that, would, that interpretation of the verse wouldn't fit at all easily with a repeated theme you find in the Bible about the importance of rationality and evidence in matters of religion. The, the Bible seems very consistent... I've got some quotes here from the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, from Isaiah, from Samuel, uh, from Jesus in the Gospels, from Paul in Acts and the letters, from Peter. 
you know, these, these are not minor biblical names here, <laughs> saying things like, God says to humans, let us reason together. I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Believe on the evidence of the miracles, says Jesus. Paul reasoned, explaining and proving, says Luke in Acts. Um, 1 Peter 3.15, which we've mentioned, and so on, and so on, and so on. So, given that context, like looking at the picture at the beginning a bit more carefully... It would seem, if there is an interpretation of that Hebrews verse that fits rather than fights against that context, that would seem to be much more natural given the tradition that it's coming, that quote's coming out from. So let's look at the, the, the local context of that verse in Hebrews. This is Hebrews 10, previous chapter, verses 32 to 36, and the writer is writing to Christians who've been suffering under persecution he says remember those earlier days after you'd received the light i.e. when they'd become Christians when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering so these Christians had become people had become Christians and that had led them to go through a lot of suffering he says sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because, and this is interesting, because you knew, because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So they were were willing to have their worldly goods taken away for them for the sake of being Christians because they knew, or they, at least they, they thought they knew, that they had better goods, otherworldly goods, that were more worthwhile being concerned about than the worldly goods, the worldly suffering that they were going, undergoing because they're Christians. So, says the writer, do not, you, know, you knew that you yourselves are better in lasting possessions, so do not throw away your confidence, your trust, your faith, It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised. What has God promised to Christians when we've persevered through the troubles and sufferings of the world? He's promised us eternal life in heaven in a forgiven relationship with God. That is worth all the suffering and all of the confiscation of our worldly goods and, and so on. That's what the author is saying to encourage them. And then in that context, he then goes on to say this Hebrews verse that Sam Harris points to. It is clearly, it's the fulfillment of the divine promise talked about in Hebrews 10.36 that Hebrews 11.1 has in mind. It's in that context. So Hebrews 11.1 is saying that a consequence of having faith or having trust in God That means you will trust him to deliver on his promise of heaven. Faith is being sure of what we hope for. We hope for heaven. Without needing to personally see the fulfilment of that promise here and now whilst you're suffering for it. Certain of what we do not see, what we don't see yet. We don't see heaven yet. So Hebrews 11.1 does not say or imply that faith means trusting God in the absence of any reason to trust him. Just the reverse. It says it means persevering despite the difficulties of being a Christian because you think you know, you've got reason to believe that God will be faithful and will deliver on the promises that he's made you of things that far outweigh the difficulties you're undergoing here and now in order to be a Christian. That's clearly what Hebrews is addressing. And then we come on to analysing the the verse that Sam Harris has picked up on. So now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Another, so I'm flipping between translations. 
I've picked up on a few key terms here. Now, faith, in the Greek, pistis. The assurance, hypostasis. The conviction, elekos, of things not seen. Now, in Greek mythology, pistis is the spirit of trust. The spirit of honesty and good faith. Uh, who escapes from Pandora's box when she succumbs to temptation and she opens Pandora's box. I mean, well, don't over-open the box, don't look in. She opens the box and the spirit of faithfulness escapes from Pandora's box and goes back to heaven, abandoning humanity in the Greek myth. The Roman name of pistis is fide, from which we get the word faith. Uh, through the Latin. So in Greek, pistis just means, it means to be persuaded. To the conviction of truth, confidence, belief, trust. Those, that's the range of meanings of the term in Greek. Now the Greek word hypostasis, which we, we're translating here as assurance... It commonly appears in ancient business documents. This is a sort of business legal terminology. And it's the idea of having a covenant uh, as an exchange of assurances. We exchange assurances between us when we make a business deal that guarantees the future transfer of goods from me to you. So we draw up a contract and it says, you know, you promise to pay me 22 sheep and I promise to give you in return five camels. You know, something like that. There's a legally binding business contract. The Greek word alekos, which has been translated here in this translation as conviction, it conveys the idea of bringing forth evidence. I bring out evidence that demonstrates that something is true and, the, and in particular, there's this interesting connotation. It's particularly bringing out evidence that proves something is true despite initial appearances. So if you've watched any detective drama, there'll often be, early on, it'll seem like the evidence is all pointing to a particular character as the murderer. And then we'll find out a crucial bit of information and we'll realise, no, it wasn't them. It must be someone else. And um, we call that in the story having a red herring. You know, on the face of it, it looked like it must have been the butler. But then, twist in the story, new evidence comes to light, and aha, it was the scullery maid that did the dirty deed. So this word, alekos, it's bringing forth evidence that kind of overturns the, the superficial appearance of things and demonstrates that something else is the case. So let's go back to our verse. So you, you could translate it like this. You could say, now, faith, that is warranted trust or your conviction, is the, the title deed, the business contract of your heavenly hope. It's the possession of Present appearances, superficial appearances, overturning evidence of heaven. So as Peter Grice in his chapter in the, the True Reason book uh, says, properly understood, Hebrews 11.1 1 speaks of the scope of faith extending beyond present visible evidence and transient circumstances but resting upon prior evidence that things will be better in the future. So the passage does not present faith and reason intention. It just says, hold on to what you know that justifies your trust in God's promises even though you're having to go through difficulties in life at the moment. Because remember, guys, you've got good reason to think it will be worthwhile. 
And that's clearly appealing back to, when you look at the, the preaching of the, the apostles as they go around spreading the gospel, they don't go around saying, um, we've decided to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and we've got no reason for that, but you know, we find it helps our lives, and you might like to try that out too. Just you know, screw up your will and decide to believe in him. <laughs> They go about preaching Christ and him crucified and we are, we are witnesses, eyewitnesses to his resurrection and God has appointed him and he's given proof of this by resurrecting him and here's the creed in Corinthians showing you know, he appeared to, to Peter and then he appeared to all, the, all of the brothers and he appeared to 500 at one time and here's the evidence and you can go and check out the empty tomb and here's the gospel accounts giving you the evidence. So Harris, like many other new atheists, also misinterprets uh, the story of doubting Thomas. Now when Thomas says, well I'm not going to believe that Jesus has been resurrected until I can put my fingers in the, in the scars in his, in his body, put my fingers in his side and so on, then I'll believe that he's been resurrected. And Jesus then appears to him, says, okay, here you go, check me out. <laughs> Blessed are you you've believed because you've seen firsthand. Um, but but you know, blessed are those who will believe but have not seen. And the atheists jump on you. Blessed are those who will believe but have not seen. There it's believing without having evidence. But there's a difference between having first-hand evidence of something or lacking first-hand evidence of something and having no evidence of something. <laughs> Just because I don't have first-hand evidence doesn't mean I don't have any evidence. And indeed, A.C. Groening also interprets this as showing what he calls the theological virtue of blind faith. But in John's Gospel, again, context, in John's Gospel... John 14, 11, Jesus himself says to people, believe on the evidence of the miracles. So why on earth would John, on the one hand, present Jesus as saying, believe because of evidence, and then tell a story, the whole point of which is to say, Jesus will be displeased with you if you want evidence. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, is there a better way of understanding this? Um, before the resurrected Jesus offers himself for empirical examination to uh, Thomas, Thomas wasn't exactly being asked to believe in the resurrection without evidence, only without first-hand evidence. Um, John 20, 24, 25, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came and they had a particular resurrection appearance meeting with him. Nevertheless, we're told, the other disciples told him, told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. So, ten of Thomas's close friends that he's lived side by side with for at least, what, three years, <laughs> all give him their first-hand eyewitness testimony that they've met the resurrection Jesus. <laughs> so it's not as if he has no evidence or that he couldn't go and look at the tomb and see that it's empty, like Peter and John did, and the women did, and so on. And actually, in this story, therefore, John is portraying all of the other disciples as believing in the resurrection. Why? Because they're, they're super spiritual and they can have blind faith? <laughs> no, because they had abandoned belief in Jesus because he got himself crucified, and messiahs aren't meant to do that. And then they change their minds and their lives because they bump into him again, alive, firsthand. And that evidential experience changes their lives. And indeed, the reason Thomas, uh, John then immediately after this story of doubting Thomas, he then ends his gospel by, by telling us the reason that he's given us all of these stories about Jesus, including the story of doubting Thomas. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, more evidence, which are not recorded in this book. 
But these are written, these miraculous signs and evidences that I've recorded, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the whole reason John gives us explicitly for why he has just told us these stories, including the story of Doubting Thomas, is that his purpose is to give us, the reader, evidence upon which to base our belief and trust in Jesus. So to then read the story of Doubting Thomas as making the point that blind faith is to be praised is to read it completely against the explicitly revealed grain of the author's intention uh, in writing the piece to us. Let me end with a quote from C.S. Lewis. I love this quotation from him about the nature of faith. Uh, This is a much more biblical way of looking at faith than to imagine it as a matter of just having blind trust. It says, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Now that I am a Christian, because of course he, he became a Christian in a process, having been an atheist, now I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks terribly improbable. He admits that he has doubts and and moods in which it's hard to believe. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. So unless you teach your moods where to get off, you can never be a sound Christian or a sound atheist. You'd just be a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion and the temporary events that sort of affect how you're feeling about things. So he says that the, the thing with faith is you're, you, you're ignoring these transient feeling, mood kind of things. And indeed, he's just going to talk about temptations and so on. On the basis of what you've thought through and you think you know. saying when we exhort people to faith as a virtue remember Grayling saying the whole point of the Thomas story is to say that blind faith is a virtue and he says no when we're talking about faith as a virtue that is to having the settled intention of continuing to believe certain things we are not exhorting people to fight against reason if we wish to be rational constantly we must pray for the gift of faith that is for the power to go on believing not in the teeth of reason but in the teeth of lust and terror and jealousy and boredom and so on things that would tempt us on non-rational grounds to stop trusting and believing it's not faith, faith versus reason It's faith that is reasonable fighting against temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil that would seek to pull you away from that confidence on non-rational grounds. That's the opposition in Lewis's mind. Uh, And he says, you know, we're fighting against these temptations on the basis of that which reason, authority and experience have delivered to us for the truth. So it's not a matter of shutting our eyes to the evidence to the contrary. It's a matter of having looked at all of the evidence and made up our minds, holding on to that which we think is is true in the face of non-rational temptations against it. And of course that means we we remain open to thinking about objections that are intellectual ones, that are rational. That we don't just have blind faith by saying, I'm not going to think about it ever again. I'm not going to consider arguments against or whatever. Um, But it means, of course, you're, you're approaching that from a certain position that you've now adopted. Everyone has their position. 
But rationality means being open to considering things again and so on. But it means making sure that you're questioning things on rational grounds when you think them through again, when you think through a new objection or a new issue or whatever. Um, And that you're not being tempted to give up because you're undergoing persecution or it's too hard or, you know, you've got bored of it. Or you'd really like to have an affair and your Christian beliefs are standing in the way or whatever Um, and and that is why back to that earlier definition of faith of believing things on the basis of reason despite difficulties Uh, not despite what reason tells you is true about the world and Jesus after all is the word the logos of God uh, the rationally communicating rational principle of the universe. John takes that concept, his concept from Stoic, Greek, pagan philosophy. They had this idea that there's some sort of order and structure to the universe. There's this rational principle behind things, the logos. And John says, the amazing thing is that the logos has become a person, he's come in person, in a person, revealing that he's not just an abstract philosophical principle, but that he is the personal creator of the universe who wants to come have a relationship with us and so on. Um, But he says, why should you believe that? Because we have seen him, the glory of the Lord. We have touched him. Peter says, we did not make up clever myths, but reported what we have seen We've, we've touched and, and so on and there's a repeated New Testament emphasis uh, that, that the gospel message includes the, the preaching of the we've seen it, we've touched it we've heard it um, the tomb is empty <laughs> and so on um, so there we go I hope that's some sort of useful counters to some very uh, common perceptions in society and ways in which uh, people try and and justify those perceptions by misinterpreting uh, the message of scripture about the nature of faith Mm. you had a question at the back sir could you please give us some uh, evidences about the eternal life evidences about eternal life okay I think this is obviously uh, within the New Testament, focused upon the resurrection of, of Jesus. Um, but we all go to the area of faith. I'm thinking about some that, proofs or other Right, so the, the Jews, yeah. It's only in the area of faith. Right. Well, there is, of course, um, I mean, Thomas Aquinas talked about the difference between things that humans can know by our unaided or unassisted human reason and things that we can only know because God gives us revealed information to work with. Okay. But notice that that doesn't mean when you believe things because of revelation that you've stepped into the arena of blind faith. Because it might very well be the case that you think you've got good reasons and evidence for thinking that this is indeed the revelation of God and that it is indeed therefore trustworthy and that it does indeed say things like we will all go to be with Christ in heaven, we will be with him um, and so on. Um, So uh, it might be quite a roundabout sort of argument as it were but just because you're talking about revelation doesn't mean that's just a matter of you, you either believe it or you don't because you can have reasons for believing the revelation. Um, you can have reasons for believing that the best explanation of the historically uh, um, gleanable evidence is that Jesus really did rise from the dead um, and that Jesus really did make certain massive claims about who he was and that if he rose from the dead, that's a, a good reason for thinking that his claims were, were true, were being vindicated by God in that miracle. And that therefore Jesus is trustworthy when he tells us things about the afterlife because he should know (laughs) and so on. Um, 
So there is a train of, of evidence and reason uh, that, that can work with what God has done in history and what he's given us in the Bible that's not just a matter of having blind faith that this is the revelation of God. That, that, that approach is actually much more of an Islamic approach to revelation in scripture. Uh, Muslims have, a, in general that I've met at least, tend to have a more sort of what's called fideistic approach. They just accept that the Quran is the word of God and then they will say things like, well, you know, the, the Christian scriptures contradict what the Quran says about Jesus. So the Christian scriptures must be wrong. Um, the Christians must have, have garbled the message. It must have changed over time or whatever. And if you try and get into, well, hang on a minute, let's look, let's look at the available evidence in terms of the documents and the archaeology and, and so on and see whose scripture has the best manuscript tradition. How, do we have any evidence that scripture, the meaning of Christian scripture has changed over time? Or do we have good reason to think that what we've got as the text today accurately reflects what was originally written and so on? The Muslims aren't really interested in entering into that conversation um, because they don't approach, they don't in general approach faith in that more sort of evidential kind of a way. But the Christian tradition has always at least had a a large element or stream of of allowing for that kind of evidential uh, approach. Yes, there there are some sort of pietistic, fideistic Christian traditions. Um, But... Christianity has always been open to the, the empirical, scientific kind of investigation rather than um, a just blind faith kind of a position. Um. Mm. Can I lift this slap up, slap up You said you were talking about blind faith. Mm. Uh, about Christian doctrine. И по-конкретно за харизматиците. Тяхната вяра сляпа ли е? За това, че не приемат останалите доктрини в християнството, а вярно конкретно например, чудеса, видения и така нататък. Тоест, как можем да събудим тяхната вяра, така че да не вярват като в колб, да приемат библейската вяра. Yes, okay. Um, and it, it may be that we have different approaches to, to this issue. Um, but I certainly agree that there are um, sort of extremes within the church and particularly charismatic kind of church backgrounds that are not self-critical enough in their approach to things of the faith that, and they are too, too gullible um, too open to everything they don't really follow the biblical advice um, to test the spirits test all things hold on to the good uh, for example, um, and so then they're not self-critical enough. Then there is, again, within Christianity, at another extreme, there are those Christians who are who are, who are t- t- too closed off to even the possibility of the miraculous today, or God doing things, or words of knowledge, or prophecy, or whatever. And I, I, I think that the the biblical position is somewhere between these two bookends um, that one has to be uh, open and exploring uh, the realm of spiritual gifts and the miraculous and so on uh, whilst not being gullible and, and, and unthinking uh, about it um, not making overly inflated claims about God doing a miracle or so on um, I'm interested you know I think God does do miracles but I think there's a lot of overinflated claims there's a lot of charlatans there's a lot of a lot of people going around 
manipulating other people and making money off the claim that they can bring a miracle and healing. And if you actually follow up and say, okay, what was the person's condition beforehand? What happened to them at the meeting? How long did it last? What was the eventual health outcome? What, what's the before and after medical opinions of the condition and so on? Um, I think when you do that, sometimes you get good evidence that a miracle has happened. But a lot of the time you get evidence that people have been caught up in the moment and there's been some sort of placebo effect and they've been swept up in the emotion of it and they've, they've felt like they've had a miracle and they've decided to get rid of the drugs that they've been prescribed because of that and because they stop taking the drugs, they die. And, and you do have that kind of thing happening, you know. Um, but I think the Bible itself contains both the reason why we should be open to the miracle and the advice that, that, that should make us treat it in, in, in a wise and sensible manner. We're told to, to test things, um, uh, to have order in church worship and so on, not to, not to use the gift of tongues without the gift of interpretation when there are non-believers there, uh, not to get carried away with things but also not not to be hard-hearted and blind towards those things um so we're called to kind of walk the difficult middle middle path um one more question the bulgaria предполагам Тоест, не се интересуват и някак си живеят по стечение на обстоятелствата. Как можем да ги събудим? Как можем да предизвикаме в тях да вярват в нещо? Апатия е почти най-трудното нещо да разбира, защото ако някой е съвременен атеист, They clearly have an opinion on the matter and it matters to them and it might be relatively easy to engage them in the conversation and the debate. What do you do about the people who just, well, I don't care, What's, is that relevant and so on? I think part of that is, is digging into what impression, what opinion of Christianity they have, what they think it actually is. Um, if they really understood what Christianity was claiming, um, They may believe or disbelieve it, but they, I don't think you can understand what Christianity is saying and think that it's an unimportant matter what you think about it, whether you follow it or not. Um, you know, it's either the kind of the greatest message in the world that we should all be following and serving, or it, it, it really is, as some of the new atheists say, this kind of massive delusion um, that is taking loads and loads of people away from the truth of reality into some sort of fantasy relationship with an imaginary friend who doesn't exist and hopes that will never be fulfilled and, and so on. Uh, and common humanity would sort of make you want to rescue people from that situation. Uh, you know, P Paul saying, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are, we are to be pitied. Um, so I think having a sort of who cares kind of attitude towards Christianity um, is either quite unloving of your fellow human being or, or means that you're very ignorant of what it's actually claiming and maybe you know there are lots of different reasons why people might be be ignorant of it um, but I think you, the church can do things to, to to shock people out of their preconceptions of what Christianity is I was talking the other evening with someone here saying that there's um, quite a lot of um, fortune telling and so on in Bulgaria, that fortune tellers are very popular, but, but that a lot, a lot of, of, of people who are associated with the Orthodox Church also go to their fortune teller. And so there's an, a cultural association between Christianity and fortune telling and superstition and so on. Um, And you can see why that would put people off Christianity. Um, 
So, you know, why doesn't the church um, put efforts into conferences and books and adverts and TV programs, whatever you can do, to say, we're the church and we attack this superstitious, uh, pagan, idolatrous practice of, of, of fortune telling. We are the church and we are against fortune t- telling. We think that is bad for people and shouldn't do it. Yes, there is an element of Christianity that's about having the future revealed to us by God. And let's actually look at the, the prophecies in the Bible about the Messiah and see how they were very, very accurate. And you can show that they were very accurate, evidentially, in archaeology and so on. And compare that to the, the, the track record of mediums and fortune tellers and psychics and so on. I saw one report of research in America about, that looked at various psychics and their predictions and whether they came true or not. And the psychics actually did worse than the statistical average of luck. You'd actually have been more accurate in making the predictions if you'd tossed a coin about things like, you know, who's going to become president next year in the next election or who... Um, they did worse than luck <laughs> and that you know it's very you compare that to the biblical track record of, of God revealing things but in the Bible says you know you only take this kind of information f- from me from my ordained prophets and there are tests that you apply and it's a serious matter and you've got to be rigorous about it um, and don't go after these foreign religious fortune tellers and, uh, and so on and that's bad for you don't do it so if you can shatter people's preconceptions that you know being being religious it's all about superstition and all of those christian people they're all into this mumbo jumbo stuff to then see christians criticizing mumbo jumbo you think well, how, you know, then they believe in how can they do that what what's that all about you know and just break down some of those kind of barriers um, by using people's false preconceptions against them. Doing things like this, where you, where you say, here's a Christian understanding of, of faith. Christianity is all about rationality. Christian is pro-science. Christian is pro-philosophy. You know? Christian is anti-superstition. Um, hmm. Right. Nothing springs to mind immediately on the, on the issue I was talking about about um, um, fortune tellers and so on. I, I, I just remembering some sort of online research that I that I saw. Um, but there's certainly good material about, about um, biblical prophecy and the evidence of that. I've got a chapter, I've got a book uh, of mine called Understanding Jesus, which looks at um, five arguments for the Christian view of Jesus. And one of those is fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament. And again, I, I take um, a, a careful approach to fulfill prophecy. So I'm looking for, you know, it's clear historically that this prophecy predates the, the fulfillment, you know, sometimes by a long time. So you know that the prophecy predates, that it's not just so vague that you could make it mean whatever you want it to mean, like the, the star horoscope in the, in the newspaper. It could apply to all, almost anyone. No, it's got to be specific. And then working out the statistics on, well, how likely or unlikely is that in, in a very generous way, um, in, in a way that, that bends over backwards to say, well, maybe it could happen by luck that it could be fulfilled and calculating the numbers and so on on, a, on just a, a selection of, of prophecies about the Messiah, what tribe he'd come from, where he would be born, what would happen to him, how he would die what would happen to him when he was dying and so on. Uh, and I worked with a, a friend of mine who's a, a PhD mathematician because I'm not a specialist in math, so I thought, I'm going to do this, I'm going to bring a math specialist in to work, run the numbers with me. And the number that we came up with for a small number of prophecies 
where the fulfillment had multiple evidence that it was fulfilled. So we didn't just say, here's a prediction and here's one verse in a gospel that says this happened to him. Rather, we say, here is independent historical evidence that this happened to him. So say, here's a verse from John and here's a verse from one of the synoptic gospels. So doing that kind of approach, being generous with the numbers, we reckoned that Jesus had one chance in 10 to the power of 32 of fulfilling the prophecies by chance. Now, to give you an idea of how big a number 10 to the power of 32 is, that's roughly, scientists estimate, the number of grains of sand there are on the planet. <laughs> Okay, so I, I, th- I think that's quite powerful evidence. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, I think indications are that that uh, Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. Not he didn't do it by luck. You know, um, and we also look at questions like, well, maybe he manipulated events to deliberately fulfil it. So clearly, when he rides the donkey into Jerusalem. And he's fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. There's an Old Testament, the king coming, riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. Say, well, Jesus deliberately did that to make a messianic claim. So we don't don't feature that in the calculation. Ignore that one because he deliberately did it. But he couldn't have any control over things like where he was born. (laughs) Is it likely to think that Jesus had control over whether or not, when he was dying on being executed, the soldiers gambled over his clothing? that he would die in that way and that this would happen to his clothing um, and so on. So we, we try and you know, be careful and not gullible. Yeah, yeah. So that's the, the Palm Sunday coming in with the donkey and so on. That was a symbol of Jewish nationalism um, during the Maccabean Revolution. Uh, the waving of the, the palm fronds had become a nationalistic symbol and they were all saying... Hooray, you know, the Messiah's come in a nationalistic way. You're going to be the Messiah who's going to kick the Romans' butt. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's why Jesus disappointed them, because because the Jews had this, from the Old Testament, the picture of the Messiah as the, the, the king who will conquer evil. But also those passages about, like, Isaiah 53... Psalm 22, that the suffering servant. Uh, and because of the pressure of, of Roman occupation, they were focused on the, the Messiah, the king, the new David, the new golden age for Israel, getting rid of God's enemies, kind of element of messiahship. And what Jesus did is he said, and actually, I, all of that is true, but I'm coming here and now as the suffering servant. And when I come back at my second coming in the judgment, that will fulfill the, the, the King David element that, that destroys God's enemies and triumphs over evil. That's still to come at the end. And they didn't want that kind of Messiah. They, they wanted this nationalistic Messiah. Um, and actually, Jesus riding on the donkey, when you look at the Old Testament passages about that... You know, he's not coming on a stallion as the conquering hero. He's coming lowly and humble on a beast of burden. Uh, and the Old Testament passages talk about coming through the gate of peace. This is the gate of peace. Enter into the peace of God through the gate. Remember Jesus saying something about gate. I am I'm the gate. You know, and how we have peace with God by, by entering into relationship with Jesus. And so on. So Jesus was saying things deliberately using those Old Testament images, but the, the crowd in Jerusalem at Palm Sunday didn't want to hear it. Um, and so, in that sense, turned from "Hooray, it's the Messiah!" very quickly through to "Crucify him," because <laughs> he's not doing what he's meant to be doing. He's clearly not the, the Messiah. You know, we'll get rid of him. Release Barabbas. At least he's had a go at the Romans. You know. So that, that historical context. Um, so it's fascinating stuff there about Old Testament prophecy and uh, I think how you approach it 
carefully and kind of scientifically uh, and you get good evidence out of it in contrast with, with pagan New Age practices and so on. Um, and there's, as I say, there's a chapter on that whole subject in my book, Understanding Jesus, and plenty of other people have written about that as well. But, uh, yeah. Grand. Uh, I think we're over our time. Are we not when... I don't want to detain you from uh, lunch and so on. So, mm-hmm. Grand. Thank you very much. Blessings. Cigar shader with stupid biscuits. Now we're going to eat uh, broken cookies. Cookies. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>